All right, again, Revelation chapter 20. And you should have a handout. If you don't, again, just raise your hand. Charlotte can come around. If you came in a little late, you don't have a handout or a pencil, she can bring one to you. Um, and so you'll, you'll notice there at the top of your handout, just kind of a, you've seen that before if you've been uh, with us throughout this series. If you haven't, that's okay, because I'm going to recap it really quick. This is kind of a, a rest and recap kind of moment, because um, we've had a lot that we've looked at over these last few weeks from historical events and situations to just a lot of things. And so I wanted to kind of just just rest for just a moment as we open up tonight and kind of recap where we are and what we've looked at. Um, and so you'll see there many big words there on your paper, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, rapture, pre-millennium, post-millennium, amillennium, and then that big old honking line there on your paper. And um, so just as a reminder of what that looks like, and you can do this on your paper. It's not working. So you got your line here. So over here on the far left, you got basically Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? This is kind of the, the beginning here. Genesis 1-1, the book of beginnings, that's what that word Genesis means, right? This is where it all begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, of course, we get the whole Old Testament kind of history and narrative and everything. And then we get to the life, the, the birth, life, ministry, teaching, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, kind of represented here by the cross. Um, we also get his ascension back into his world. Um, we see that at the beginning part of Acts. And so this kind of represents um, just Jesus right here. His life is ministering. And quite literally, this event here has split history in two. This is God himself taking on flesh, right? The word become flesh. Uh, this is a huge, huge moment. And then you get Pentecost right after this. So you get the birth of the church which again is a big moment, right? This is the Holy Spirit of God coming to live inside of us. As Jesus says, as the Father's in him and he in the Father, so he will be in us and us in him. This is a massive moment in which John would talk about this in John 1, that we are born not of the flesh, but born of the Spirit. We, this is truly where you get that idea of born again. Jesus uses that language with Nicodemus, um, that we are born again. Um, this transformation that occurs. We go from death to life, darkness to light, right? Paul talks about this in Ephesians, that we once were darkness. This is who we were. Uh, but now we become children of the light. And so this transformation has occurred. We go from rebellious sinners to adopted sons and daughters in Christ. Uh, it's a huge moment. And we kind of looked at that weeks ago, and we'll continue to come back to it. Um, but you remember in Genesis 1, right, the very first words that we see in Scripture that come out of the mouth of God is, let there be light, right? Let there be light. Um, it's a huge moment. We see something very similar when they build a tabernacle in the wilderness. We see light like fire come down and consume the tabernacles. The presence of God comes and consumes, and now his presence is among them. It's the same kind of imagery that you get to when Moses is on the top of the mountain, right? Remember, he came down, his face was glowing, 
had to put the veil over his face and all that kind of stuff with this kind of this brightness. You see that also at the transfiguration of Jesus, right, where he's transfixed before them, uh, this brightness, this kind of light. We see this imagery a lot. And so then you get it again when Solomon builds the temple, right? And just like what happened with the tabernacle, right, the presence of God comes and consumes and fills the temple like fire, like this light that comes down. Well, then we see it again with who? With a young woman named Mary, right? And we see it not with the building or the tabernacle. We see it with a womb. The womb is dark. The womb is chaotic. Very similar imagery to Genesis 1. That's why I think John and John 1 wants to draw our attention back to in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this kind of imagery that's going back to that, and then God said what? Let there be light. But this is not just any light. This is the light of the world, Jesus would call himself. The light steps down and what basically becomes this human being, right? This miraculous conception. And you see the imagery of the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary in the same way that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters in the beginning. And so then, this is huge because then you get to Pentecost and you see what? This like fire coming down, the presence of God coming down. And not to fill a building, not to fill a tabernacle, not even to fill one, to fill one person, but it breaks apart, right? And, it, and like, like fire, like these flames, is over all these believers, right? And in a whole new kind of way, God says, let there be light, right? And the Spirit of God fills these believers. They become his sons and daughters. And every time somebody is, quote-unquote, saved, that's what happens, right? They repent and believe. They receive the Holy Spirit of God. God says, let there be light in that person, and they now become a son or daughter of his. It's a huge moment. So this is a big deal. And then you get all the way down here. So now we're kind of in what we would call the church age, right? And so now you can go over here and you can kind of draw two little lines here. Let's do this. All right, so you can kind of draw two lines here. And in between these two lines, you can write um, tribulation or you can write seven years. Or you can write both. All right, so you get the seven years, you get the tribulation here, and then you can write another little line a little farther out over here, and this is where you can write 1,000 years or millennium, or the millennium kingdom, or again, you can write both if you'd like. And so this is where you get that, and then over here you get, you can write new creation or you can write eternity. Or you can write both, which would be after this a thousand years. So this is where you get the different views that you have on your paper. So you got pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. So this is where you can do these little arrows going up. during this seven years. So if you have a pre-tribulation view, then what you mean by that is we're talking about the rapture. And so what you mean by that is that Jesus is going to come down. We get this in 1 Thessalonians, this kind of imagery. And he's going to snatch up or to catch up or to rapture his church out of the world pre-seven years of tribulation or kind of God's wrath coming upon, coming upon the world. So that is what the first line represents, is pre-tribulation. 
I'll write it as pre-trib. Some hold the view of a mid-tribulation rapture. So they would say, no, it's going to happen at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the seven years, mid-tribulation, and that's when the church will be raptured up. You can write mid-trib if you want to. And then some hold to a post-tribulation view. That's when the church will be raptured up after the seven years of tribulation. You can write post-trib if you'd like. So then, so in, in a way, we've talked about this already. We've just spent several weeks talking about the tribulation, rapture theology, and so on and so forth. And so now we're going to spend these next couple of weeks talking about this a thousand years, um, or this millennium, or this millennial kingdom, whatever language you want to use there. And so, what are we? What are those pre-millennial, post-millennial, and amillennial views? So now you can do two arrows, one towards the beginning of the thousand years and one towards the end. So the first arrow, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight, the pre-millennial view. This is the traditional kind of dispensational view. Um, this is where probably the most popular by far in these um, options is this pre-millennial view. And so in this view, as we'll look more at tonight, basically says Jesus is going to come down pre the 1,000 years and establish an earthly physical kingdom here on earth for 1,000 years and reign with his church or his people. Again, there's a couple different views, as we'll see with this, whether it's ethnic Israel who, are belie who become believers, or is it the church at large, all believers, or is it just the martyred believers and the whole thing. So anyways, but they would say that Jesus is going to come down and establish this 1,000-year reign um, pre-millennial. The post-millennial view basically says what's going to happen is we're going to keep progressing and progressing and progressing as a world. We are going to hit some bad years of tribulation at the end, but after that, we are going to just kind of progress into this utopia on earth. Like we're just going to have this slow transition into the thousand-year millennium, and it's going to be very nice and pleasant, and as we'll see. Um, and so it's a very similar view of what this a thousand years looks like. They both kind of have a similar view of that a thousand years, but one says, no, Jesus is going to come down and then, you know, basically bring that kingdom into existence. The other view says, no, it's just going to slowly transition into that. And um, so that's the post-millennial view. This is a really, really popular view really going into the 20th century, but then what happens? World War I, World War II, all sorts of things begin to unfold, and many people didn't really like that view. Um, but in some ways, it's coming back around. And then you get the amillennial view. The amillennial basically says, ah is like, no, it's, it's the negative. So it's basically said there is no literal 1,000 years. The amillennial view basically sees it as symbolic or as allegory. And again, we'll look at that and what that means. So that's kind of your overview. Um, this little diagram can kind of help you visualize where the main interpretations are. But we've kind of looked at the tribulation, the rapture. We're going to now spend some time in the millennium over these next couple of weeks. And then I'm going to tie it all together at the end of this semester, kind of as a major overview. 
And then next semester, we're going to jump into the book of Revelation. And, and so this has all been this semester, kind of an overview summary of all of this. All right. Trust me, there's books and books and books and books and books and classes and classes on all this. You can just keep going on and on. But let's tie it all together here tonight with the millennium, jumping into the millennium. Um, so the question is, is what is the millennium or the millennial kingdom? And where does this idea or this topic even come from? And this is where we get to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 specifically. And so tonight I want to read that passage. And then we're going to look at kind of the, the, the most popular view or inter interpretation on this, at least over the last 100, 150 years, the dispensational interpretation on that. And we're going to look at, that, look at that interpretation here tonight. But remember what dispensationalism is, all right? Remember, it's just a method of kind of interpreting history and really Scripture, the history as recorded in Scripture, that divides God's work and His purposes towards us, humanity, into different periods of time or ages. And so, as I said a few weeks back, when it comes to dispensationalism, just think ages, right? The dispensationalists would say, if they're more kind of the traditional camp, the conventional camp, classical camp, they would say there's really seven dispensations or seven ages. Number one is the age of innocence. Number two is the age of conscience. Number three is the age of human government. Number four is the age of promise. Number five is the age of law. Number six is the age of the church, hence the church age, which we're in now. And then they would say the seventh age and the final age pre-eternity is the age of the kingdom or the millennium, the 1,000-year reign. And again, remember the father of dispensationalism. We looked at him a little bit weeks ago. His name is John Darby lived in the 1800s, and he approached the Bible with really three specific major interpretational methods. Number one, you have to approach the Bible with kind of a strict literalism when it comes to your interpretation. In other words, everything should be read from the Bible strictly, literally, unless it's super, super clear that something is not meant to be taken literally. So, for example, like a parable might be an example of that, right? Everybody knows a parable. There, there's imagery, there's allegory in a parable, even though there's objective truths that Jesus is presenting. We know that the imagery in these parables is not meant to be taken literally. So that would be an example. Number two, he held to the absolute separation between the church and Israel, and really, he kind of saw kind of two trajectories for both. You have kind of the ethnic nation of Israel on one over here, and then you had the church over here. And God's promises for ethnic Israel, the promises that he had toward, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on, kind of, he says, no, those are still need to be fulfilled. Um, and then you got the church over here, and, and we'll look more at that as we dive into this 1,000 years. But he saw an absolute separation between the church and Israel. And then number three, his big, big thing was the rapture. Uh, this is really where rapture theology really takes off. Um, but basically, he would argue that 
The church is broken, and our only hope is the rapture, this kind of being taken out of the world and not experiencing great tribulation. So that's just kind of a quick um, background of dispensationalism as we look at that approach here tonight on Revelation 20. But let's just read this passage, and then we'll present this view, um, and then our next time we'll kind of break that down a little bit more and hold it up to some different passages. But Revelation 20, verse 1 through 10, and this is what we read. There we go, I got a little, a little advertisement there. <laughs> verse, verse 1, chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, and the angel was holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and he was holding a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. But then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. We'll definitely look more at that next semester. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So again, there's, there's much, much here. And over these next couple of weeks, we're going to kind of break this passage down a little bit. Um, and especially when we get into the book of Revelation next semester, um, it, it'll kind of bring it all together, I hope. Uh, but tonight, I just want to present the dispensational view of the thousand years as it's been presented here. And the next time we'll kind of, you know, break that down a little bit more. But um, there's a couple sources I'm drawing on here that I think present the dispensational view very, very nicely. Um, and there, there's two sources here. You can write these down if you want to. One is gotquestions.org. Gotquestions.org. This is a great resource, by the way. Um, If you're ever like Googling something, you're like, what, what does the Bible say about this? Or what is this? This is a trusted good source, gotquestions.org. 
they do a really good job summarizing your, your, your answer, probably the way you want it to. Um, and I bring them up because, um, and they'll tell you that they, are, they take the dispensational approach to the end times. Um, and so I think they do a pretty good job of presenting that. Um, also, David Jeremiah, many of you follow him. David Jeremiah is probably the biggest voice when it comes to um, the dispensational view. And so if you have read any of his book, done any of his Bible studies, we've done them here many times. I've done them. And, um, and he, he has this dispensational approach, um, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, he, he's a Dallas Theological Seminary grad, DTS, 1960s. And again, they are a big dispensational seminary. Um, and so I'm drawing from these two sources. I think they're really, really good in presenting this approach. Um, so what is the millennium? Let's go back to that question. What is the millennium according to the dispensationalist? Well, this brings up your first point here. The millennium will be a literal period of 1,000 years, sometime in the future from now, but after the seven years of tribulation. So the millennium will be a literal period of 1,000 years, sometime in the future, but after the seven years of tribulation. So the millennium refers to this 1,000 years that we just read a lot about in Revelation 20. It's mentioned like six times um, here in Revelation 20. And another term for this is the millennial kingdom. So if somebody starts talking about the millennial kingdom, you hear that pop up, you're like, what are they talking about? They're talking about this 1,000 years as it's being presented here in Revelation 20. But it is a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth um, where he is reigning as the king of the earth. Like, uh, I mean, he's visible. He's there. Like, if I were to, you know, we get on the news and we see presidential elections and things like that, we see the president, like, you'd be able to see Jesus, like, literally on the earth reigning for 1,000 years Again, this is following the tribulation, according to the dispensation of you. And so they would say, uh, while some argue that the 1,000 years is symbolic, like the amillennial view, for reasons that we'll look at next time, the dispensationalist view argues that it is literal. Again, six times the word is used in Revelation 20, just specifically verses 2 through 7, and it's said to be 1,000 years in length giving the precise time period of the millennial kingdom. So point number two, what is the millennium? What does it look like? All that kind of stuff. The millennium will be the literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and promises. The millennium will be a literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and promises. So one source said that there is more information in the Bible about the millennium than any other period in Scripture. And many of these references are tucked away in the Old Testament where you wouldn't expect. And when you start to search for it, there is something about that period everywhere you look in the Bible. And as we'll see when we study Revelation, I tell people this, and it's not my term, somebody else uses it, but Revelation is like this Old Testament uh, jujitsu kind of book. What I mean by that is John, almost every other line, has Old Testament imagery he's drawing from. 
And when you really study it and you get down into the weeds of it, it's, it's incredible how much he's drawing from the Old Testament. But they would say that the prophets of the Old Testament predicted such a time as this 1,000-year period. And without the millennium, they would argue that none of those prophecies actually could be fulfilled. Thus, they would argue that it is the literal fulfillment, and it must be the literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and promises. So again, they would say that there are countless passages that point to a literal reign of the Messiah on the earth, and that the fulfillment of many of God's covenants and promises rests on a literal, physical, future kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So they would argue that the unconditional covenants in the Old Testament demand a literal, physical return of Christ to establish this kingdom. You say, well, what are the promises? What are the prophecies given through the covenants that they're talking about? Well, the covenants promised Israel a land, like a physical land. Also, a future ruler and a spiritual blessing. They would go back to when God was talking to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. The covenants also promised Israel a restoration to the land and occupation of the land, going all the way back to Deuteronomy 30. The covenants also promised Israel a king from David's line who would, what, rule forever, giving the nation rest from all their enemies. This goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. So at the second coming, according to this view, these covenants will be fulfilled as Israel is regathered from the nations, converted, and restored to the land under the rule of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So they would argue that when Jesus comes back here, that's when these Old Testament prophecies and promises will literally be fulfilled when he comes back there. He'll establish himself as king in Jerusalem, physical Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David. And David, to use this language, would be like his vice president. And he would sit on the throne with Jesus, and they would rule the world in righteousness and godliness. So, then we go on to your next point. According to this view also, the millennium will have perfect conditions, both physical and both or both physical and spiritual. The millennium will have perfect conditions. So, again, this is where the, the post-millennial view would also say this as well, but again, they just kind of see us getting there. They don't see Jesus actually coming and establishing that. They just see eventually God from heaven changing the world's conditions into that 1,000 years eventually. Whereas the premillennial view says, no, 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 Jesus himself will come down and establish this perfect world with his 1,000-year reign. So it'll be a time of peace. It'll be a time of joy. It'll be a time of comfort. Again, they're pulling from Micah and Isaiah, many places in Isaiah, like Isaiah 32, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 40. They even look back to those old imagery and old language where there will be peace in the animal kingdom, where the lion will lay down with the lamb. There will be peace among mankind. Um, all the hostilities that have been a part of our world 
will be gone. So the things that we're seeing on the news between places like Russia and Ukraine or in the Middle East or the U.S. with the, you know, the Western world and the Eastern world, all these kind of this, this brokenness and this, this anger, all that kind of stuff and divisions and hostilities, all that would be gone in the millennial reign of Christ. The millennium will truly be an incredible, perfect, nice place. And so with this view at the moment of the rapture, Every believer who is alive or deceased will be taken up into heaven and will remain there for about seven years while the tribulation is happening on earth. Once that tribulation is over, Christ will return to the earth. And from there, only believers would enter the millennial kingdom. When Christ returns to defeat the armies of the world that have formed against him, we, his followers, those who believed in him, will return with him. And after the battle is over, the Bible says that all Christians are going to be a part of the government. And again, they would quote here Revelation 24, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they would say that we will stay on earth with Jesus, and we will rule and reign with Jesus throughout the whole world. Again, there are scores of promises scattered throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, guaranteeing God's people that they will receive rewards for faithful service. You see this in Matthew 16, Matthew 25, Revelation 22. And part of our heavenly reward will be to reign and rule with Christ upon this earth during that 1,000-year millennium. Each of us will have opportunities to serve the Lord based upon our faithfulness in serving Him right now. So because of all this, it will be a time of obedience. A time of obedience. They get this from Jeremiah 31. It will be a time of holiness. Like what we see in Isaiah 35. It'll be a time of truth, like what we see in Isaiah 65. And it'll be a time of the knowledge of God. And Christ just will rule as king. There'll be nobles and governors who will also rule, but Jerusalem will be the political center of the world. Not only that, but in the millennium, there will be no war. Again, there will be no hostilities. There will be peace among the nations. Disease also will be abolished. So here's your next point. The millennium will bring extended lifetimes. The millennium will bring extended lifetimes. Again, we'll look more at the passages that kind of affirm this view a little bit more next week. But because of the universe's kind of pristine conditions during the thousand year reign of christ people are going to live for a very long time um, it would kind of be like reverting back to the good old days of the era before the flood right where we could live to be 900 or 800 or 700 um, and so it would kind of be in a way with this view it's kind of envisioning extended lifetimes so as a result the dispensationalist would ask, with the millennium, can you imagine a world with no fear, no disease, no pain, no worry? That is what the millennial kingdom would be like. For a thousand years, there will be peace. We'll live in a perfect world with Christ as our ruler, something we can look forward to when our lives are difficult, when our world is filled with chaos like it is now, or immorality and despair as we go through hard times. Our future is with Christ Specifically, they have in view this 1,000-year reign. 
So again, ultimately, this 1,000 years is very pleasant. It's very nice. Jesus is here physically. Um, you, you would see him, you know, like, again, imagine like today if technology was still functioning or moving. I don't know. You, you would see him on social media. You'd see him on the news. Like, man, there he is. You know, he's talking. You know, that's, that's him, you know. And so it would be literally here, not, you know, just talking through somebody, but actually here. So it's very nice and pleasant, but you, you, you should be picking up on some things, too, with this view, because, as your next point here, even though things are very nice and pleasant, there will still be sin and death in the millennium. There will still be sin and death in the millennium. So they would argue that the crisis of death would be experienced, but only by those, and I quote, incorrigible individuals, those stubborn, persistent individuals who remain in rebellion against the law of this now established kingdom. So yes, there will still be sin in the millennium, but it will be dealt with immediately. They argue that everybody who goes into the millennium will be righteous. They all will be saved. But during that 1,000-year period, they envision that there will be marriages. Children would still be born, and some of those children would rebel, will rebel the things of God or rebel against God. Just like today, they would argue that each person born during the millennial age will make a personal decision for or against Jesus. But they would come back and say, we can be assured of this, that the rebellion wouldn't last long, that the one who is in charge will know the intent of every heart, even like he does now, and there will be swift justice for every wrong. Again, Jesus would be here physically, and things would just be precise, you know, just like very quick. Um, when I think about this, I kind of envision, if you've ever fought like Batman or something, you know, and he puts the sign up, and he's, he's immediately there, and he's stopping the crime. That's kind of what they envision. Yes, there will still be rebellion and sin, but man, it'll be swift. You wouldn't go, somebody wouldn't go into hiding for months or years. They would be caught right then and there. So they said the Bible says our Lord will rule with a rod of iron. That means there won't be any long delays in justice, no long waits for trials, no long waits for sentences to be carried out. Hey, your trial is going to be here in six months or no, it's going to be boom, right then and there, right? No waiting in line. Uh, maybe it'll help us with the DMV too. I don't know. But there will be immediate justice based upon the holy reign of King Jesus. All right, so that's kind of a, a very, very brief overview and summary of what the millennium looks like. You say, well, I didn't read, read that in Revelation 20. But again, a lot of this is, 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 comes from Old Testament prophecies and that they would argue is this is literally coming to fulfillment in Revelation 20 with the thousand-year reign. And so there's a lot of stuff tied into that. Don't worry, we'll look more at those. But why, at least according to the dispensational view, why a millennium? Why a literal reign and rule of Christ in bodily form? Why that a thousand years? What's the overall purpose of this? That's what we just described. What would be the purpose of this? And this brings us to these last four points here. The overall purpose of the millennium is to, one, reward the people of God. To one, reward the people of God. To reward the people of God for their, their faithfulness. Um, for remaining loyal to Jesus. Again, as, even as you saw there in Revelation 20, right? Those who had been martyred 
um, those who did, you know, did not take on the mark of the beast, so on and so forth. So the millennium really would be a reward for those who remained loyal to Jesus, even unto death. And so they would be raised to life to reign with him, quite literally, over the earth. So number one, the purpose of the millennium is to reward the people of God for their faithfulness and loyalty to Jesus. But again, number two, and we've been talking about this, the, the other, one of the overall purposes of the millennium is to, number two, fulfill Old Testament prophecies and promises. Number two, to fulfill Old Testament prophecies and promises. Again, we looked at some of those, but those prophecies and promises made to God's people about a land, about possessing a land, about a king that would come in the line of David and, and you know, basically putting an end to these enemies and hostilities and, and just the imagery that you see in the Old Testament prophets uh, of kind of a, a new reality with God as Lord King reigning um, on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and so they would argue that the only way these prophecies and promises are fulfilled is if you literally have a literal reign of Christ on earth for that 1,000 years. And so it is to fulfill prophecies and promises in the Old Testament. Number three, it's to answer or fulfill the disciples' prayer. And again, this is kind of tied into these prophecies and promises in the Old Testament. But you remember like in Matthew chapter 6, we think about the Lord's prayer on earth as it is in heaven. So even that, that prayer of thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Um, so to answer, fulfill the disciples' prayer. And um, again, they would say that one day when Jesus returns, as we see in Revelation 20, his kingdom will come and his and his will shall be done on this earth. And then number four, to reemphasize or remind us, all humanity, of sin and our need for Christ's death. So to reemphasize, number four, to reemphasize or to remind us of sin and our need for Jesus and his death. So again, as we already talked about, during the millennium, those faithful servants who survive, who will make it through, who remain loyal to him, will bear children in whom the sin nature will still reside because the fallen human nature of man will not be eliminated until eternity, new creation, post-1,000 years. Um, and so at the end of the 1,000 years, as we see in Revelation 20s, we'll look at a little bit more later on, but Satan will be released He'll stir up a final rebellion against God, just as he did in the Garden of Eden. And so, even though Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth during the millennium, some will yet be deceived in the end. Right? And you kind of see this anticipation all throughout the New Testament, is that as we approach the end, there was just the deception. Right? You already begin to see how it could actually unfold, even in today's context, especially with technology, things like artificial intelligence, deep fake kind of stuff. Um, it, it's pretty fascinating how you can easily deceive somebody these days. Um, and so that's kind of what they're getting at here. Um, so even though Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth during the millennium, some will yet be deceived. And this demonstrates just how deeply man needs a Savior, how we, humanity, needs Jesus. 
Um, we can never achieve righteousness apart from God. So that is the dispensational view in a nutshell. You read Revelation 20, you say, man, there's a lot there. But there's even more there when you begin to kind of look at Old Testament prophecy and how that kind of ties into some of Jesus' teaching and Paul and Peter and John's teaching that builds on Jesus' teaching, and then how that then ties into this book of Revelation. But there are some questions we need to ask going forward because we're going to put these different views up to the biblical test and see which one is more plausible. Um, but some questions we need to ask going forward when it comes to interpreting Revelation chapter 20, uh, and we'll really look at this in the, grand, the, the bigger context of Revelation, but what is the immediate context and message of Revelation chapter 20? What is the immediate context and message of Revelation 20, what we just read, those, those 10 verses? What's the immediate context and message within Revelation, the book itself, and how is that related to the overall New Testament? And then how is all of that, again, in connection to the Old Testament prophecies and promises? Because, again, as I said, you know, month or month and a half ago, they always say, you know, if you want to understand Revelation, you need to understand the New Testament. If you want to understand the New Testament, you need to understand the Old Testament. If you want to understand the Old Testament, you need to understand those first five books of the Bible, the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, the law, when you see like the law, the prophets, and the writing, the first five books of the Bible, the, the, the Jews and the Hebrew Bible say this is one book written by Moses. This is where it all begins, right? And, and so if you want to understand those first five books of the Bible, the, the law, you need to understand the book of Genesis, right? Again, where it all begins. This is why John and John 1 is wanting to bring you back to the very beginning to see how all this is connected. And so we need to ask, what is the immediate context and message of Revelation 20 within the book of Revelation, within the New Testament, and within the whole scope and narrative of Scripture? And then what are, another question we need to ask is, what are these Old Testament prophecies and promises specifically referring to? What are they specifically referring to? Do they refer to the second coming of Jesus or the first coming of Jesus? Or both. That, that's what we have to ask. That's what we've got to cut it inside. Do they refer to the first coming of Jesus or to both? So like when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, that, that's kingdom. That, that's, that's kingdom type language. That's reign. That's rule type language. When he says that kind of stuff, when he says, hey, take heart, I've overcome the world, is, does he saying, hey, that's currently happening or does he projecting or envisioning something in the future, specifically with his second coming. And so those are the kind of questions we have to ask, is what specifically are the Old Testament prophecies and promises specifically referring to? And again, another question is, what has Jesus already accomplished? What has God himself already accomplished in and through the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus. Because even remember in John's gospel, Jesus is like, hey, now's the time for the ruler of this world to be cast out. And John says, hey, he was talking about his death here. Like, what has Jesus accomplished just by becoming a human being, just by laying down his life for sinners? 
and by coming back again. Not resuscitated, not as a ghost, not as a dream, but truly raised imperishable, raised with immortality. What does Paul envision in Philippians 2, as we're preaching on this week, that Jesus, in essence, is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now? What does, what has Jesus accomplished? What has God in and through Jesus accomplished already? And what is Jesus accomplishing presently as we speak? In and through his people. What is he accomplishing presently in and through his people? And then what does Jesus have in store for his people? And this is where we get to the end of all things. But these are kind of the questions we need to ask as we begin to break down Revelation 20, looking at it in the context of the whole overall book and the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, how it all ties together. But tonight I've just given you, this is kind of the traditional dispensational view, the presentation here. Um, and again, that is a brief summary. Each one of these little points we can write books on um, and look at all of it. But before we dismiss, are there any questions about anything we've talked about tonight? And again, somebody earlier asked me, hey, what's that fancy word? Eschatology. Again, remember, it's just the study of the end times, right? If you hear eschatology, it's a fancy word. It just means the study of the end times. That's what that means. But any questions about any point, anything that we've talked about tonight? You guys are like, man, I'm ready to go home and do my homework now. I'm ready to go home and do it. Okay. <laughs> well, again, I'll be up here afterwards. If you got a question, just come find me. And uh, next, next time we'll break this more down and then begin to look at how it all ties together. But let's go to Lord in prayer, and then after that, y'all are dismissed. <laughs> Father, again, we just come to you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love for us, your plans for us. And Father, no matter certain takes on certain things, Father, we know that for those who love you, for those who remain loyal to your only begotten Son, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, as their Master and King, Father, you have in store something far beyond our imagination. We look forward to it. We praise you for it. And we plead with you in the meantime to bring the lost to a knowledge of the truth, to salvation in Jesus turn people's hearts and minds to you, strike fear in them before you, draw the nations to you, draw the leaders to you, bring healing, bring light into the darkness. And use us, your people, your church, to go and be that city on a hill, the salt of the earth, that light in the darkness. Help us to live as your children in everything we say and everything we do. And I pray that all of it would just draw people to you and that you would get all the glory. But Lord, help us to have wisdom and understanding, especially when we approach difficult passages and scriptures in your word given to us. Give us wisdom, give us understanding, give us humility. And just speak into our hearts and minds and our lives in and through your word and continue to transform us from one degree of glory to another more and more to the image of Jesus in everything we say and do. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen. I got you all out late last week. I'm getting you out almost right on time tonight. So we'll see you all later.